Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Stephen M. Crayson, Professor of Political Science and Legal Studies at Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled Restoring Sound Culture and American Principles, The Different Dimensions of a Social and Political Response. Professor Crayson's talk was part of Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The first question that one might ask is whether it is correct to speak about restoring sound culture and American principles in the same breath. After all, didn't Aristotle emphasize that there were deficiencies in almost all political orders? That while the best political order was conceivable, none in existence measured up to the standards of goodness per se. <laughs> Further, aren't we discussing how to reverse cultural decay that especially afflicts not just the United States, but other Western countries as well? True enough, but even taking into account the blemishes in the American founding itself, our parchment republic and the culture that spawned it, as I have argued elsewhere, were not just sound but exemplary. The, the American republic was truly quote, a new order for the ages, unquote. The great American Catholic political thinker, Orestes Augustus Brownson, according to Father America Lopati, who is one of the leading scholars of Brownson, believed that, quote, America's special political mission of the world was how success, it successfully balanced in its constitutional republic, quote, equal individual rights and the powers of government. That is, it resolved better than previous political orders the fundamental problem of ensuring that government would have enough power to carry out its rightful functions while still protecting the rights of its citizens. The meaning of all this is that when we talk about restoring sound culture, it can rightfully be said that in many respects, it involves restoring the cultural conditions of our founding era in terms of politics, law, and constitutionalism, the principles set down by our founding fathers. Now, I have a few uh, sections of this paper, and the first significant section is called A Crisis of Reason. Sound culture and the American political tradition have been erected on the foundation of reason. We cannot underestimate the extent to which the crisis of, a con of contemporary culture is a crisis of reason. I think that's been evident from the papers presented here this weekend. How it is a crisis of reason has resulted from the assault on reason and the elevation of the will driven by the passions to a position of preeminence in the lives of both individuals and political societies. One among a multitude of examples is seen in the notion of post-humanism, which is the domination of individual wills over human nature, with the result that the notion of human rights as enshrined in the great international human rights documents of the first half of the 20th century, and foreshadowed by the US Constitution and the Bill of Rights, has given way to a rank individualist notion of rights. The latter often concerning nothing more than desires, no matter how base or how unreflectively embraced. Such a new conception of rights is now driving the decision-making of major international human rights tribunals, such as the European Court of Human Rights. It has also shaped the jurisprudence of the US Supreme Court for the last four decades. It is also shaped, it has, uh, the court basically um, expressed the thinking behind this in its famous mystery passage, passage in its opinion in Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey in 1992 that uh, reaffirmed Roe v. Wade and Dobie Bolton. Here's the quote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, unquote. 
So the defining principle for courts and human rights tribunals now seems to be personal autonomy, whether or not it conforms to reason, a correct understanding of human nature and the natural law tradition that has grown up with them. Robert P. George has identified the, the almost single-minded focus on autonomy as essentially the centerpiece of many of the most influential contemporary and political legal thinkers and legal thinkers. The struggle to restore, restore sound culture then is a struggle to restore reason. It is in effect a battle against a condition and the profound consequences of a condition that has been 500 years in the making, which has upset the proper ordering of the soul that Socrates and Plato spoke of, where its reason part is supposed to control by bringing the will uh, over to its side, the passions. It's supposed to control the passions. It now rushes headlong in, uh, in our current cultural situation into a more and more evident situation of nihilism. While there may be different approaches, strategies, and ways of facing off against the secular culture and securing cultural renewal, their objective at bottom must be to get people to think correctly or perhaps to learn for the first time simply how to think. The appeal always must be to what is reasonable, that is, what accords with right reason. I once heard the expression that the natural law works in men, so the defenders of sound culture must proceed with the belief that at some level, it will not be a deep intellectual level for most, people will be moved by appeals to reason, to the better angels of their nature, to quote Lincoln. That means having the facts making the good arguments and knowing how to counter those of the adversary, always acting with an educative intent and spirit, mastering rhetorical practice, not being untruthful or manipulative though, making the case repeatedly and being persistently assertive so that the adversary is not allowed to define the terms of the debate, and always demonstrating courage in both small and large encounters and in big and little ways. The forces of secular culture are descending to an ever more irrational and destructive level and exhibit an ever more intolerant and oppressive posture. But in doing so, they plant the seeds of their collapse. We must believe that a vigorous, persistent, reasonable appeal, always with the requisite prudence, astuteness, and good judgment, we must always be as gentle as doves but as wily as serpents, along with a proper coordination of our efforts when needed, and always an abundance of prayer and active sacramental life will eventually bear good fruit. History shows that cultural renewal is possible, as figures like the great 20th century conservative thinker Russell Kirk, conservatism at its best, were fond of reminding us. The next section is called Individuals, Families, and Citizen Action. With an understanding that appealing to reason to educating in the broad sense of the word must be our objective. The struggle to restore, sound, to restore sound culture must take place at different levels in different arenas. I like the expression, the, fit, the fish rots from the head, which I attribute to our earlier speaker here, Robert Riley, from an interview that I read with him way back uh, in uh, his early days with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I think uh, this would go back to the 1970s. Our current cultural turmoil had its roots mostly in troublesome attitudes and beliefs. So there is a need to alter and correct these. And that, of course, is not a quick or an easy task. In my book, The Transformation of the American Democratic Republic, and in my neither left nor right but Catholic column that appears in Crisis and the Wanderer, 
I have set out a number of ideas over the last couple of years. Uh, in the book, I specifically talked about what I thought were modest, doable objectives to undertake that could, as I put it, begin to forge a foundation for restoration of our compromised American founding principles, and more precisely, the culture that helped to spawn them. A number of things can be done at the personal, family, and individual citizen level. First, people should watch television less and instead read good old books from the era before political correctness and erroneous revisionism, such as short historical studies of the Constitution, biographies of the Founding Fathers, and even fictional works such as Johnny Tremaine. These instruct in a basic, often indirect way about America's heritage and basic principles. They should also watch old movies, say from the 1930s to the 1950s, because they convey a sense of personal restraint and propriety that must be reinstilled to begin the rebuilding of a culture like that of the founding. Cultures, of course, are constructed from the personal level upwards. Even more basically, people need to reorient themselves, make sure of their own moral compass, and also make sure their children have the proper sense of correct attitudes and conduct for life. Turning to good old books can help here once again. When Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind in the late 1980s, he said that the great books were always available to help college students get themselves back on track in terms of intellectual and moral formation. We cannot expect the general population to sink their teeth into the heavy works that, frankly, only certain college students can handle well. But there are others that are more appropriate. A good suggestion is a book like William J. Bennett's noted edited volume, The Book of Virtues, A Treasury of Great Moral Stories. When we speak about children, concerned parents these days simply have to be prepared to do a lot of educating of their children on their own. Homeschooling is a good solution for parents who can undertake it. There is little doubt, by the way, about how successful homeschooling is for academic formation. I have a citation in the footnotes. But otherwise, they must closely monitor what their children are being taught in schools and supplement and provide what they are not receiving. Parents should be prepared to provide individually or get together with similarly concerned parents to provide such additional instruction through group study in such areas as literature, American history, heritage, and government, and the history of Western civilization. Such informal cooperative arrangements would be good for parents themselves, say, to further their own cultural and citizenship education. That is, study groups on literary classics or on the Constitution that parents can have themselves. To restore sound culture, people have to become orient, reoriented to virtue. They must go against the overwhelming drift of the age toward the easy, undemanding life and commit themselves to the admittedly arduous effort of leading virtuous lives. An important part of this, when we think back to the founding era, with its admonition against luxury and its appropriate restraints on economic freedom in the name of the common good, is to seek less in the way of material goods and to be more restrained in their spending and willingness to incur debt. Americans could do well to take to heart the urging of Pope St. John Paul II to live more restrained, quote, lifestyles. That is, to have and to use material goods in a reasonable and not excessive or superfluous manner. Related to this is the need for people to restrain themselves about what they seek from government. In an era of entitlements, they should take as little as they have to from it. Not only will this help in developing more self-restraint, but also enhance a spirit of independence and self-sufficiency. 
both of which were a part of the early American culture that spawned our democratic republican form of government. American citizens must resolve to take the time and make the effort, actually not a great deal amount, a great amount of either is required, to seek more information about public issues from more sources so they can make a more correct assessment of them as citizens. Too often, public decisions are driven by public sentiment and opinion, fashioned by vague impressions of things or incomplete information with unfortunate consequences. To simply seek more information in itself is an example of the enhanced citizenship education that is needed today, and it happens merely by self-initiative. Along with this, Americans concerned about restoration must take the next step, preferably with some consistency of letting their public officials know their views. Today, today this can be as simple as sending an email. When enough citizens communicate with them on something, it likely will affect their actions on most things. Since the stakes are so high today, they must resolve to do this consistently and ask their like-minded friends to do the same. It almost goes without saying that citizens must then take the next, also fairly simple step after that, voting. They should go even further. They should talk about issues of public concern more with fellow citizens when the opportunity arises. It's not a time to follow the practice of not discussing religion and politics. And by writing letters to the editor in their local newspapers, they also should make a, sh a point of showing up at candidate forums during election campaigns and at town halls that their congressmen and state legislators have, and forthrightly but politely express their views on moral and other issues affecting the culture. Since most people gain their moral formation through religion, the founders believed that religion was crucial to sustaining a democratic republic like the US, and a turning from religion is a crucial factor in cultural decline. There is unlikely to be a serious cultural rejuvenation without the resurgence of genuine religion. Since religious belief is fundamentally personal, this must start with the individual. Piety, of course, is a virtue. The classics recognize this, and for Christianity, the highest virtues, of course, are the theological ones, one of which is faith. A virtue is a habit, and habits must be developed. So Americans need to develop the habit of religious practice for their political order, but mostly for themselves. Like all habits, it requires discipline. Not an overwhelming amount, but at least a modicum. They need at least to make time, a, time, a little time daily, perhaps just a few minutes for prayer. They will not be able to avoid an excessive fixation on material things or a veritable servitude to the here and now without making room for the transcendent. The discipline also involves their attending church. This is crucial for their moral formation. They're being clear about what that moral formation requires and they're placing religion in its proper context of communal worship of God by men who share a common createdness and thus an essential equality. This kind of understanding of equality is at the core of a sound culture and of the founding conception. Moreover, they need to find a traditional church or congregation to worship in. That is, one that has not sought to accommodate itself to the cultural and intellectual trends of our era. There's another aspect of discipline that the ordinary citizen needs to exert. The corrupted, nihilistic, popular culture of contemporary America has eviscerated sound sexual morality and such norms as gentlemanliness, civility, and good manners, all of which were part of founding American culture and any sound culture. Much of this, of course, comes from, this evisceration comes from the artistic community. 
Its sustenance depends in large part on people watching its television shows, going to its movies, reading its books, periodicals, and tabloids, and attending its plays. Curiosity, even for gossipy and lurid information, a desire to experience what others are talking about, and simply boredom motivates uh, people to indulge in this popular culture. Persons who see the problem with the popular culture should discipline themselves not to indulge in it and encourage others to follow the same course. In fact, they could in their own small ways make alternatives for themselves and their families. We see this with such activities as Civil War era balls and cotillion dances that groups of parents in local communities organize for teenagers and preteens that will provide a setting to develop some of the very interpersonal norms that the popular culture spurns. To in a small way help to restore the central place of the family and norms of marital fidelity and family stability, which are at the core of a sound culture. Spouses should simply take their marriage vows seriously and work to be the best spouses and parents that they can be. It appears, by the way, that a certain significant element in the U.S. is now doing that. The upper middle class and well-off elements clustered in the high-end suburban enclaves that Charles Murray discusses in his book, Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to 2010, even though Murray says they don't preach what they practice. Those of a more intellectual caste should rightfully plan to go deeper. College students should seek out sound professors, those, that is, who have good, moral, good formation while not taken with political correctness and are committed to the principles of the founding and the cultural traditions behind them and take pertinent courses, you know, in the, the usual typical secular universities I'm talking about here, courses in history, political science, literature from those kind of professors whenever possible. They should take courses whenever possible that will enable them to read the great books again. Such professors or even the students themselves can form kinds of informal study groups with a more academic cast perhaps that were mentioned, that I've mentioned already to enable college students to learn about sound philosophy, the Western cultural heritage, and the Constitution when formal courses are not available. As future leaders in American political society in the public and private sectors, college students could know, do no better than to focus some of their informal study attention on Alexis de Tocqueville, whose Democracy in a Bear America, 1835 to 1840 is when that was published, is arguably still the most insightful work on the, on the nature of American culture. If they cannot find actual college courses that will give attention to his thought, do it informally. They can take advantage of the often free programs of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute that's been mentioned, whose specific min, min, mission is to aid in the intellectual formation of college students to better understand many of the very principles and traditions we are concerned about and related groups. Professors like these and other solid professionals could form speakers bureaus in local communities and make themselves available as a free public spirited service to citizen groups and other institutions to speak on different aspects of the Western cultural tradition, the Constitution, the founding fathers, the ideals of the founding, and so on. They can work with interested local businessmen and other citizens to restore the great American revolutionary era tradition of pamphleteering in order to re-educate their fellow citizens about, say, the principles of America's founding, and can simply do things like showing up at parades and public events on national holidays to distribute those pamphlets, make them available on public, uh, li public library information racks, leave them in places where free literature can be picked up, and so on. 
With the financial help of businessmen, they could mail them, say, to the people listed on selected pages of a local phone book. Maybe even a few very wealthy national business leaders could be convinced to help bankroll a larger effort like that. They can offer free adult education and informal courses for college and high school students on basic logic and reasoning correctly and the basic principles of realist philosophy. Since, as stated before, the root of the present-day cultural crisis is the abandonment of reason. As was stated above, people, everyday people, or the more intellectually inclined, who understand the importance of the principles of the Western cultural heritage and the American political tradition, should commit themselves to openly, forthrightly, and courageously, but also kindly and patiently, defending those principles to others. A small amount of courage, by many people day in and day out, can have significant results. And showing that truth can be spoken in the spirit of love of neighbor can go a long way toward promoting civility. This can be a ready witness that, contrary to the church-state separationists and the moral relativists, insisting that there are truths that must control our public and communal life does not inevitably bring, inevitably bring tolerance and oppression in its wake. One other important effort needs to start at the interpersonal level. It must start so it can then continue at other levels. This is the need to recover language. As Rita Marker, one of the founders of Franciscan University's Human Life Studies program, is also executive director of the uh, Patients' Rights Council based here in Steubenville, internationally known opponent of euthanasia. As she would always say, verbal engineering precedes social engineering. We can't concede the prerogative of shaping the terminology to the adversaries of sound culture. It was not a mistake that the homosexualist movement appropriated the term, quote, gay. They were trying to convey that same-sex attraction and, in fact, sodomy were just normal, not, not just normal, but also positive and benevolent. Indeed, we should not have even conceded something as basic as the rejection of the use of the masculine generic, he or his, and accept, uh, accept the supposedly inclusive practice of saying he or she or his or her. This did not underscore the claimed need to treat males and females equally. There was never a question that right-thinking people understood uh, men, uh, and men and women to be equal in the correct sense of the word. But arguably, it and similar verbal manipulation provided a linguistic underpinning for the feminist revolution in obliterating gender differences. Citizen action, especially against the overreaching of government, has to be carried out not just on the individual level, but also must feature mass action. I'm not talking about civil disobedience, which I don't like, frankly, but about perfectly legal rallies, marches, and demonstrations. Along these lines, the approach of the early Tea Party movement to have large demonstrations in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere before, erroneously in my opinion, turning their attention mostly to primary challenges in the Republican Party was a good paradigm. While the Tea Party's effort has mostly been on fiscal-related issues, Citizen groups should consider this kind of strategy for many other public issues as well. Restoring the family is certainly an essential element of cultural renewal. We can be stymied in this effort, however, if we cannot first protect the family. This was alluded to once before here this, this weekend. One of the main governmental assaults on it, widespread but long under the radar screen, at least until such recent dramatic developments as the Justina Pelletier case, has been carried out by the so-called Child Protective System, the CPS. The CPS was brought into existence supposedly to combat child abuse and neglect, but in fact only a small minority of the reports it investigates concerns true abuse or neglect. 
We don't have an epidemic of child abuse and neglect, but an epidemic of false reporting of it. As I have discussed in a, length, a series of lengthy scholarly articles over a quarter century, the CPS routinely interferes with legitimate parental actions and subverts parental rights. It is a fundamentally coercive, totalitarian-like system that features an almost universal monitoring of parents and their child-rearing practices. It represents an area that calls out, for vigor, calls out for vigorous, visible citizen action along Tea Party lines. I suspect that if there were organized, active parents and related citizens groups that regularly picketed and called press conferences at county courthouses and CPS agencies, the CPS across the country is organized mostly on the county level with some overarching state agency. But if there were those kinds of you know, activities on the county level to call attention to the system's systemic abuses and major periodic protect the family rallies or something like that in state capitals, coupled with the, the ongoing legal efforts of organizations like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, the Family Defense Center in Chicago, it would not be too long before there would be major changes in the CPS. The effectiveness of direct mass citizen action was dramatically seen in France in the 1980s when, it, when to oppose government initiatives to put more restraints on Catholic and other private education, a million people took, took part in a massive rally, most of whom probably were not drawn from the sector of French political society who were most accustomed to public protesting, and the government beat a hasty retreat. And we just heard about recently what happened in Paris. Uh, a million people in the streets opposing the redefinition of marriage. There is another dimension of citizen action that is important as well. Part of what the renewal of culture involves is for people to begin to break free from the control of distant entities, whether private or governmental. That is, to work to give substance to a central principle of social ethics, subsidiarity. Citizen efforts need to be undertaken taken on the one hand to help ensure that human needs are addressed, and on the other to enable people to gain greater control over their economic destiny. Families need to refocus their thinking on caring for their own, to doing what Pope St. John Paul II called for in his striking critique of the social assistance state in the encyclical Centissimus Annus, to take responsibility for helping those in need at that level as much as possible. To assist the family with this when needed, we need to set our minds to the building of a healthy, vigorous civil society sector. Citizens shouldn't wait for or concede responsibility to the established, often large, entities in that sector, many of whom are partially funded by government. What they can do is to devote themselves more to sustained volunteer efforts and working to build up intermediate groups to help each other in this regard. While it would be unrealistic and maybe disadvantageous for people to think they could simply turn their backs on large-scale economic enterprises, what they can do, if they have the interest, talents, and wherewithal, is to think anew about working to build more small-scale enterprises and cottage industries. Some of these things could be cooperative endeavors, and that itself could have the added advantage of helping to rebuild community. Alan Carlson writes about these things, by the way. If such things could catch on over an extended period of time, people might begin to see that the American populace does not have to be a simple victim without any recourse at all of global economic trends, and that government is not the only or the best entity to help them. A few examples might be expanded cooperative efforts of various kinds among small businesses in the same field, perhaps along the lines of some types of rural cooperatives. 
The organizations also set up by certain groups of Christians to pool funds to help each other with health care expenses. And the special clinics set up by some physicians that offer a full range of health care services to people without insurance for a low month, flat monthly membership type fee. These are modest efforts. But if enough such things were put in place and proven to be successful, it could gradually shift peop people's attitude toward a more small-scale, localized, non-governmental approach to social welfare. And to some extent, especially if more people are working to restrain their runaway demand for material possessions, economic activity at a more small-scale level. This would be like the conditions that prevailed in the culture of the American founding era and would help to reignite such admirable cultural norms of that period as industry, overcoming adversity, honesty and fair dealing, commercial efficiency, a spirit of independence, and a willingness to make present sacrifices for expected future good. Moreover, such efforts of citizens to assist each other might help in a small way to rebuild the sense of community that has been so compromised in an era of mass culture. To be sure, prevailing law may be an obstacle to some of these citizen initiatives, like in the healthcare area. Citizen organizations and small businesses have to be as aggressive as possible in resisting, politically and legally, governmental efforts to overregulate and regiment them and stop them from undertaking the kind of initiatives just mentioned. Where people have to rely on larger, more distant economic entities, concerted citizen action should be used to restrain their excesses, especially their attempts to further deleterious cultural trends. For example, they should, people should organize letter campaigns to large companies that have signed on to the homosexualist agenda. And the well-chosen, well-thought-out, I emphasize, well-chosen, well-thought-out, and focused boycotts, not the scattershot or excessive boycott efforts we often hear about. They can use those things if they use them properly against such business entities. Conversely, they should openly and pronouncedly support companies that have resisted such trends like the support shown a couple years ago to Chick-fil-A, and also like this astounding uh, 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 raising of money over the internet for Memories Pizza in your South Bend, Indiana, just a few days ago. My next section, legal efforts. To let the above kinds of individual and family efforts, to, uh, to have the time to build up a better culture, Legal and political efforts are necessary to enable us to have the freedom to do them. I've already mentioned uh, legal advocacy organizations working for parental rights, a couple of them. On the religious liberty front, we have seen the indispensable work of such organizations as the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Thomas More Law Center, and the Beckett Fund in coming to the aid of ordinary citizens, small businesses, and churches that have been threatened by government as it tries to impose the tenets of a secular public philosophy and morality. Lawyers who recognize the dangers need to step up in larger numbers to join small government public interest uh, legal advocacy organizations or simply on their own to offer free or low cost voluntary legal help to such citizens and groups. I've written elsewhere that something more is needed than legal defense, however. The struggle against the forces of the secular culture, which have shown themselves to be extremely aggressive, cannot succeed in this respect or in others if their opponents do not go on the offensive. More, they must be consistently on the offensive. 
Legal efforts are needed that will pursue actions in tort and other areas of law against officials and organizations who trample on religious liberty, free speech, and other constitutional rights. Homosexualist act organizations and activists who have gone after the Christians who won't do things like provide services for same-sex so-called weddings or have encouraged the ouster of corporate officials who supported pro-true marriage efforts and the like should be held to account legally for these actions. If they were to see their resources depleted, having to defend legitimate tort actions, they would likely back off of what they are doing. Civil rights law, labor and employment law, and even traditional principles of contract law should be used to call companies to task when they accede to such homosexualist demands. Resuscitating the seldom used tort action of abuse of process would cause outfits like the Freedom From Religious Religion Foundation, FFRF, to be much more restrained in their efforts to impose an almost fanatical secularism on American life. Maybe if local officials, the typical target of the FFRF, saw that skilled volunteer lawyers are ready with a response like this, they would be less likely to just surrender to their threats. That even happened in Steubenville, by the way, here, okay? The FFRF came after the city of Steubenville uh, uh, because of the proposed logo on uh, the city uh, that was being proposed for the city, which included the university's chapel on it, okay? And they came after the university, yeah, they came after the, uh, the city, and the city essentially, I guess, kind of backed off. Even this expanded effort at legal advocacy, though, is not sufficient. Those in the pro-traditional culture legal community must make use of every opportunity to educate the public and their colleagues in law, uh, in law about what our traditional common law and constitutional principles and liberties were and show how central they were to our founding background. They must show how the claimed rights and legal perspectives of the secular culture like same-sex so-called marriage and the twisted notion of equality used to justify it, are without basis in our legal tradition and why they hold the prospect of undoing that tradition. Next section, the kinds of political responses that should be considered. If the efforts on the personal and family level for cultural renewal and to try to influence public decision-making are mostly modest things, some of which I have suggested especially in my columns and some of my other writing, to be aimed for at the political level are, to be sure, large objectives, but increasingly important ones to be thinking about and are possible under the right circumstances. First, the question comes up as to how Christian and other political candidates who are truly concerned about taking on and changing the secular culture should go about doing it. This is really a broader question about what kind of politics is needed in an age of cultural meltdown. I reiterate here what I said in one of my columns. As with the other levels at which the secular culture has to be challenged, in the political arena there must be a combination of courage, insistence, unremitting assertiveness, an offensive posture, a true political savviness, and an educative approach. That is, the long-lost educative function of politics cries out to be rediscovered. The prime focus of the serious Christian politician cannot be concerned about the next election. The stakes are simply too high now. As I said in that column, immediate electoral success accomplishes little if the republic and the culture are in shambles. The recovery of the crucial educative function of politics requires having a sound, substantive understanding of the questions of the day and also mastering rhetoric in the best sense of the word. The old expression, it's not what you say, but how you say it, is pertinent here. The political left 
and the other apologists of the secular culture should not be permitted, as is so often the case, to define the terms of the debate. To effectively carry out the educative function of politics, one has to first create the conditions to make it possible, to clear out the obstacles to it. What this means, among other things, is that one has to call out the secular left. A Christian politician must show, persistently and emphatically, how the left's agenda and objectives have become increasingly irrational and explain how potentially destructive they are. Further, he must show how they use manipulation, deception, and untruth to promote it and not hesitate to show the opportunism that's often involved. For example, how politicians who were once against abortion and same-sex so-called marriage changed course without any sense of principle when the political winds did. Christian politicians should not hold back because of a supposed concern about being uncharitable. The maxim for Christians has always been, speak the truth in love. Too often, however, Christians in our time confuse charity with a kind of sentimentalism, bred by the non-judgmental ethos that is rife in the secular culture. Truth ends up being the casualty. I remember a prayer book that I once had that stated the different de kinds of demands that Christianity puts on its adherents. One of these was, toward the evil, it is resistance. Christians in public life, by the way, should also not be reluctant to put the media enablers of their secular leftist opponents on the hot seat when the occasion presents itself. We've heard about the media here this weekend. They need to cultivate a genuine astuteness in dealing with the media. Instead of answering just the questions that the media asks them, or letting the media put them on the defensive, or set obvious snares for them, they should be sure to be a step ahead of them. They need to anticipate the media's questions and angles and make sure again to be careful of their language and be in control rhetorically. They should also not be hesitant to point out to the media where their understanding of something is incorrect. This too is part of the educative function of politics. Or to challenge the media's opportunism every bit as much as they do that of their opponents. For example, when Clintonista George Stephanopoulos pull the contraception issue out of the hat in the Republican debates of 2012, apparently to set up the so-called war on women issue, the candidate should have repeatedly hammered him for the rest of the debate for his manipulation of facts, unfairness, and for misusing his journalistic position to assist Obama and the Democratic Party. How a Christian political candidate, or say a legislator, concerned about cultural renewal should put this approach into practice can be illustrated with the issues of abortion in hard cases, so-called hard cases, and also the same-sex so-called marriage issue. One can recall the situation of Representative Todd Akin in the 2012 U.S. Senate campaign in Missouri when he clumsily answered a journalist's gotcha question about abortion in the case of rape. It also points to what is the best way to deal with the issue of abortion for these so-called hard cases. Besides stressing the small percentage of abortions sought as a result of rape, which is usually a false issue raised by people supporting abortion on demand, a pro-life candidate should call out the inquisitor, accusing him openly of insincerity. It's a gotcha question with simply stated a pro-abortion agenda. The best way to argue against abortion here and in all cases, of course, is to focus repeatedly on the conclusive facts about the unborn, child, unborn child's humanity, regardless of the circumstances of his conception. 
The aim should be to keep, to put and to keep the pro-abortionists on the defensive and to hold the higher rhetorical ground. Provide the truth and more, keep pounding it home. As important as sound arguments are, however, many people need to be touched personally. I think we've heard that uh, already here in a few talks. As important as sound arguments are, many people need to be touched personally. So, Christian pro-life candidates could do no better than to occasionally have pro-life speakers who were, say, conceived in rape, but whose mothers chose life, or abortion survivors, or just women who have physically or psychologically suffered from abortions, join them on the campaign trail and give their witness. Finally, how do pro-family candidates tackle the same-sex so-called marriage question? This is actually harder given the now deep-seated, convoluted thinking about rights and equality. Rights are now viewed as essentially just grounded in desires, personal preferences, that should prevail as long as someone is not obviously hurt by their exercise. Equality means that everyone should be able to exercise the same rights. Isn't that just fair? Our individualistic ethos also makes contemporary Americans unable to recognize damage to the social fabric and how that ultimately can hurt people. Since people need to hear about harms, candidates cannot go easy on active homosexuals. There is no way to oppose same-sex so-called marriage without targeting sodomy. Now, that's been talked about here, too. You can't just fall back on the religious liberty argument here. You talk about what's going on. So the significant health consequences, consequences of homosexual practice, practices must be repeatedly emphasized as must the fact that they're being allowed to, quote, marry, will not, as some claim, check their tendency to have multiple sexual partners. The obvious harm of that for any children present who were, say, adopted or from IVF or a previous heterosexual relationship or marriage, the harm to those children must be underscored. The emerging evidence, anecdotal and from studies, of the range of deleterious effects generally on children reared in same-sex households must repeatedly be pointed to. Still, with the aggressive efforts of the homosexualist movement to debunk even the soundest research, as we have heard about here, Christian pro-family candidates have to take the educative function of politics to a deeper level. That means not being afraid to talk about what marriage and the family are supposed to be, why they can't be merely or fundamentally an exercise in individual desire or predilection, why marriage cannot be closed off from procreation and child rearing, and why it has to be seen as an enduring association. They have to explain the dangers of allowing it to be redefined or defined in, in a, any way that someone wants to for individuals, especially for children. And there is now plenty of evidence about the long-term effects of family breakdown on the rising generation, and also the, the adverse effects for our cultural and political life. To counter the drumbeat of, for same-sex so-called marriage, they probably will have to speak about another almost verboten topic of recent decades, how men and women actually are different, and why children need both. Why we can't expect politicians truly to be moral and religious teachers is okay for, for so, but we are in a time when Christian politicians have to play an important role in educating the public about the moral and practical problems of the wayward cultural norms and practices that have taken hold. Yeah, we don't normally think about politicians being moral educators. They have to, to some degree, be moral educators now. When it comes to the homosexualist movement, and more broadly the entire sexual libertine left, Christian politicians should consistently attack their increasingly repressive and in fact totalitarian tendencies. 
such as seen, for example, in the forcing of these bakers and events planners and all these people to take part in same-sex so-called weddings. As we're seeing also, some states, a few states, banning reparative therapy for minors to change same-sex attraction. You might have seen in the news, the Obama administration's attached itself to this. Are they going to push a national initiative now to ban reparative therapy for minors? As we see also in the pressures to topple opponents of same-sex marriage from corporate positions, which I referred to before. In the HHS mandate on contraceptives and abortifacients, and in the diminishing of conscience protections for healthcare workers. Again, the educational effort must be combined with a confrontational stance that aims to put the proponents of destructive cultural transformation on the defensive. This is a new kind of politics, to be sure, but one necessary to, to rescue a collapsing culture. It is also not one that can readily dismissed, be dismissed as an electoral loser. It may take extra time for the message to sink in, but if done correctly, with a combination of an offensive posture, persistence, education, astutely anticipating the, the opposition, mastering rhetoric, and a charitable spirit, I believe that it can have the effect sought. Let's keep in mind that our current politics-as-usual politicians, who may understand the need to address our cultural problems, but can't seem to see beyond short-term electoral success, often succeed at neither. How about Governor Corbett over in Pennsylvania, last election? Further, Christian politicians trying to change the culture need to be willing to go against the grain at least to some degree when in office. It is easy, for example, when elected to Congress to buy into the beltway mentality and to think just about perpetuating oneself in office. They need to be prepared to embrace ideas that do not fit into the comfortable pattern and be prepared to take initiatives even if their party leadership does not support them. We have the unfortunate situation now where one of our political parties has moved toward the doctrinaire left and embraced many culturally corrosive forces. And the other one, despite opposing this, basically maintains a holding pattern when it takes power. The result is that nothing is achieved and the culture just gets worse. What I've argued for, uh, for some time also, is some things about executive power. I have argued that, contrary to what the defenders of traditional culture might think in this era of Obama, that in this era, executive power may be especially crucial, at least to upholding and in, uh, and in fact, in many respects, restoring American constitutional principles, and especially protect traditional citizen rights at a time when they are coming under increasingly relentless attack. On the other hand, one cannot expect executive leadership to build our crumbling culture. That is beyond what any one man can do. A solid president can have a salutary effect, however. Even while we're witnessing misuse and possibly unconstitutional use of executive power by the Obama presidency, we should not shy away from the strong, even sweeping use, although within the Constitution our traditions, of executive power to help rescue us. Let us consider the historical justification for very strong executive power, uh, such as, uh, such as uh, I'm speaking about. In ancient Greece and Rome, in times of great internal turmoil or external threat, there was provision for al giving almost absolute power to an eminent man to get them out of a mess. So when the Athenians got into trouble, they turned to the great ethical poet Solon 
and gave him near-complete power. He made sweeping but wise reforms that ameliorated the tensions among classes that were threatening to break out into civil war. After the crisis passed, he stepped down and he went into self-imposed exile. He was a great example for our founding fathers of self-limited power. The Senate and early Republican Rome twice made the statesman Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus dictator. That term did not then have the pejorative connotation it does nowadays. Once they gave him uh, this power to battle enemy tribes that were about to swarm over the city and later to defeat an internal conspiracy. He assumed power just long enough to do his job and then returned to the plow on his farm. Both men, as I said, notable examples of self-limited power to our founding fathers. George Washington was sometimes called the American Cincinnatus. Both Aristotle and John Locke said that in times of a breakdown in sound culture and in the rule of law, both of which we are witnessing today, executive power assumes a greater importance. While Locke was a great promoter of parliamentary power against kingly absolutism, he nevertheless endorsed something called prerogative power. This gave the political executive the discretion to act for the public good, quote from his second treatise, without the prescription of law and sometimes even against it. Actually, what is needed now in America is not really for the president to act outside the law, but to exert extraordinary power to uphold our <laughs> fundamental law, the Constitution, and the principles of our tradition and the natural law that stand behind it. Edward S. Corwin, perhaps the greatest American constitutional scholar of the first half of the 20th century, said that our, our founders believed that a broad range of autonomous executive power or prerogative was lodged, lodged in the presidency. He also emphasized that such power was not limited to wartime or even to situations of great urgency, but could be exercised so long as needed for the public good. Theodore Roosevelt's stewardship theory of the presidency embraced a similar perspective. In his book, Constitutional Dictatorship, the famous historian Clinton Rossiter showed how contemporary constitutional regimes have found it necessary in times of great crisis to grant extraordinary power to government, especially executives, which for a time may even to some degree alter the character of the regime. What is needed now is not necessarily the extra constitutional means that Lincoln used to save the Constitution, but rather the utilization of powers that presidents possess but have seldom exercised or exercised to the degree necessary. While we are not witnessing whole-scale disorder of the nature, say, of widespread violence in the streets, though the racial clashes of 2014 and our localized examples of that, and we certainly see massive examples of more specific violence, like an abortion. Nevertheless, we are facing a deeper cultural disorder that becomes more intense with each passing year. A new American Cincinnatus, a president who could exercise, would exercise executive power to perhaps an unprecedented degree, could certainly act forcefully and decisively to protect citizen, traditional citizen liberties when the courts do not or when they themselves thwart them. In truly serious situations, he could refuse to enforce court decisions and even resist them when necessary. Truly serious situations. He could act to ensure that true American constitutional principles will be upheld. As I said, rebuilding a sound culture is not something one man can do alone. But he could take dramatic initiatives, even if resisted by the other branches, that could decisively send the country in that direction. In the long or even sometimes the short run, 
People will fall in line except a new course that a leader insistently sets them on, even if they resist at the start. This would especially be so if he led the way in reviving the educative function of politics, persistently making his case to the public in an understandable way, while always remaining on the rhetorical offensive against his opposition and not allowing himself to be outflanked by it. There are many specific things that he could do, or should do. Reverse Obama's executive orders, sweepingly abrogate federal regulatory law in many areas, like that Larry Stratton was talking about, starting with the HHS mandate, EPA overreaches, and a whole host of repressive IRS regulations, and simultaneously act vigorously to get the kind of control over the federal bureaucracy that presidents are supposed to have. He could put the federal government on a firm course of gradual disengagement, gradual disengagement from many programmatic areas by refusing to seek reauthorizations and progressively cutting down the federal budget while at the same time making sure that human needs and questions are, are addressed by actively working to build up civil society. He can interpose federal power to protect churches and to defend religious and personal liberty against the encroachments of state agencies, as when, when local or state human relations commissions force Christians to violate their consciences by providing services for same-sex so-called weddings, and when states subvert parents' rights to make choices about medical care for their children, like this reparative therapy thing or the, the cases of medical, medical kidnapping like in the Justina Pelletier case. Even more critically, he could intervene with federal power, irrespective of what the courts say, to protect the Terry Shivos of the future. He could outright refuse to carry out unconstitutional Supreme Court decisions, such as U.S. versus Windsor, which mandated that federal benefits be given to same-sex so-called spouses, and block decisions to try to further remove religion from the public domain. He could take an aggressive stance against the UN and the EU as they try to subvert authentic human rights in favor of the homosexualist and sexual libertine agenda. And perhaps most dramatically, he could finally engineer a constitutional confrontation against the Supreme Court on abortion. If, say, a state governor rounded up every member of a certain ethnic group and put them in a concentration camp. Would anyone seriously say that the president has no power to stop it if a federal court refused to do so? It is no different with abortion. A whole class of American citizens is summarily being deprived of a right even more fundamental than their liberty, their life. So would a president truly be acting tyrannically by just shutting down the abortion clinics? If rebuking the Supreme Court seems extreme or unthinkable, we should recall Federalist 78, which says that only the executive has the sword, that is, the enforcement power. We should recall Andrew Jackson's refusal to carry out the court's mandate in the Cherokee Indian cases, which rendered it null. He said, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, then the great uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court, John Marshall has issued an opinion, now let John Marshall enforce it. John Marshall couldn't and it wasn't. And Lincoln's insistence that a Supreme Court decision such as Dred Scott did not bind the political branches for all time. If it's true that the President, and Congress for that matter, may not resist the most blatantly unconstitutional decisions by the courts, we have become what the great conservative scholar Russell Kirk, who I mentioned before, called an archonocracy instead of a democratic republic. Executive power used in even, in, an, in even an unprecedented way does not mean despotism. 
Rather, when exercised by a virtuous, capable man with a strong sense of self-limitation and an understanding that it is only temporary, it can be used to stop the slide to despotism. Building up a healthy culture and political order take much time. But if we don't check more, if we don't start to reverse the advanced state of decay of our traditional liberties and constitutional principles, we may not get the chance to build up the culture. In ordinary times, we can accept interminable deliberation, plotting, excessive compromising, and willy-nilly decision-making of legislative bodies. It is different in times of crisis, where a civilization hangs in the balance and time is short. We can't even seem to forge legislative majorities that will, that will uphold our traditions and moral truth. This is even apart from what was said before about how even though many politicians go to Washington committed to stopping the dangerous socio-political cultural trends of the time, no significant initiatives almost ever seem to be taken to do that. The challenge obviously is how to get the new American Cincinnati selected. I don't have an answer to that except to say that Christians and others seeking in a serious way to confront the secular culture and protect American traditions should look to executive power, rightly exercised by a thoroughly moral, self-limited, and capable man to lead the way. As they evaluate prospective presidential candidates, they should consider who can best be trusted to exercise power in this manner and be effective at it. As I wrote in another of my columns, we can also look to state governors to provide strong executive leadership to help check the erosion of traditional rights, even if the influence they can have in their own states is much less limited with, than with a president. We saw this, though, recently when Maine Governor Paul LePage ordered state child welfare bureaucrats who are under his authority to agree to a mother's wish to cancel a DNR order for her badly injured hospitalized baby, despite the medical authorities' wishes to keep it in place. He did this despite the bureaucrats getting a court order to back them up. He even threatened to defy, the, to defy the main Supreme Judicial Court if it upheld the lower court. If it turn, as it turned out, the Supreme Judicial Court said the case was moot after the state bureaucrats dropped their demand. The rights of Justina Pelletier and her parents could similarly have been, similarly have been protected from an out-of-control state child protective system if Massachusetts had had a similar type governor. In the last uh, section of my, of my paper, uh, the Catholic Church in America and the challenge to the secular culture. I add a few final remarks about the church's stance in the U.S. against the secular culture. It's been talked about some here this weekend. I cannot go much into this. It's a topic for an entire book. I have to make a few observations, though, especially in light of recent troubling developments. These include only a few examples. One high-ranking American prelate who seems to have embraced homosexualist identity politics, who commended a, commending a, a prominent athlete for, quote, coming out about his same-sex attraction, and saying that the issue of withholding Holy Communion from pro-abortion politicians is a, is a thing of the past. And another high-ranking prelate who seemed to agree. And another case of the former editor of a prominent religious journal of opinion, which tilts Catholic as a conservative so-called Catholic uh, himself who came out for same-sex so-called marriage. And the St. Patrick's Day parades in New York City and Boston, opening themselves up to homo homosexualist groups marching in them, apparently without objection from the institutional church, and even, even more than just with no objection. One considers that these developments are not signal signaling a number of things. A sense that certain unfortunate things have just become the norm and we'll just have to cut our losses and work with them and do the best we can. 
a belief that there has to be a rapprochement with the secular culture because of a belief that civility, in some sense, requires it, a misguided pastoral concern that, while not dissenting from church teaching, holds that certain doctrinal issues can be kind of glossed over for now, and maybe we can get back to them later, or at least that the church would do better to focus on evangelization and not address moral issues in the public sphere, as if that were not part of evangelization. And maybe a weariness, a feeling of being punch drunk in the ongoing, seemingly interminable cultural war, culture wars. And a belief that one high-ranking American prelate has, has, has emphasized that what we really need in the culture wars is more dialogue, with the implicit assumption that the adversaries are willing to listen. I am skeptical about all of these points. I have said consistently in this paper that a mixture of an offensive posture and education is needed to challenge the secular culture and those who are trying to uphold it in its many manifestations. In other words, there's no problem about dialoguing, but we cannot do just that, and we cannot do it on the adversary's terms. There is always a danger in not emphasizing strongly enough, in an upfront manner, the truth. Nor can we be too optimistic about the adversary's willingness to listen. As the eminent uh, Catholic social scientist, Monsignor Paul Hanley Furphy, said in the middle decades of the 20th century, the attempt to reach out to unbelievers in a manner which glosses over any parts of Catholic doctrine has been fruitless in bringing them around to see the wisdom of Catholicism, and further has been, quoting him, a prolific source of dogmatic error, unquote, in the church. I also suggested in one of my columns that perhaps some, sound, some Catholic leaders are falling prey to the temptation to confuse charity with a false notion of compassion that is characteristic itself of the secular culture. I referred to this about religious people more generally early in the paper. And maybe this is the same with Catholic leaders. They may also have bought into the secular culture's erroneous view that I've alluded to and seen so vividly in the Supreme Court's perspective about religious establishment that civility requires the downplaying of at least the most unpopular truths. Well, I acknowledge that there are high obstacles to overcome, to renew the culture, and am aware that the building of a culture usually takes a very long time. I think we should not fall into the trap of viewing the task as insurmountable or thinking that the current secular culture is more impregnable than it really is and that its various accoutrements are more ingrained than they truly are. As I said in a column, if some in the US Catholic leadership are allowing themselves to be crippled and unwittingly perhaps weakening the Christian witness, then the laity who understand the problem have to perhaps ever more than before step up to the plate. Recently, I believe uh, a, a high-ranking uh, Catholic uh, prelate uh, said this very thing. It is time to understand now that perhaps American Catholics, both clerical and lay, historically have never quite fully, uh, we have to understand something that American Catholics have never fully quite gotten down. The role of the laity to take the lead in the realm of affairs, that is necessary. That is the true realm of the laity. A properly formed and informed laity has to take the initiative to challenge the secular culture and try to change it. They have to do the work of reforming, that is, reforming the secular culture in the social, political, economic, and institutional realms. The American laity finally has to realize that it cannot wait for the bishops, clergy, or church bureaucracies to do this. To be sure, 
If their bishops and clergy are not viewing the problems of culture and public life correctly, they should also express their dissatisfaction and try to educate, if you will, educate, quote unquote, their bishops and their clergy in a spirit of charity and humility. I say, quote unquote, okay, not to be arrogant, not to be condescending. These are, after all, our, our, uh, our leaders in the church, you know, but to, quote unquote, educate them in a spirit of charity and humility. There is one other thing that the Catholic lady should turn its attention to, <clears throat> especially since we are talking about how to deal with the secular culture. The lady should consider, with appropriate direction by clergy who share their commitment to cultural change, how it can increasingly, in an organized fashion, engage in apologetic efforts. The Catholic laity may even be able to work to some degree with laity of other Christian churches that are truly faithful to the tradition to make the case for Christ in an age of unbelief. After all, at the most basic level, when we think about challenging and changing the secular culture, we are talking about conversion. I close by returning to the question of the seemingly insurmountability of the task. I recall occasionally from my students how those of us who lived through the Cold War believe that the, the division between East and West was a permanent feature of our international life. Then all of a sudden, even though it was not foreseeable, five or perhaps even two years before, communism collapsed. More, it crumbled not with the worldwide cataclysm that so many feared, but almost with a whimper. At bottom line, communism fell because of the same fundamental problem as today's secular culture in the West. It was on a collision course with human nature, what I said at the beginning of this paper. The collapse of communism didn't happen automatically, however. Besides prayer, I remember my teacher, Father Robert Levis of Agannon of EWTN fame, told me back at the time that it was the fruit of little old ladies playing the, praying the rosary for 70 years, since 1917. And it was also 45 years of Western opposition at varying degrees of intensity, and the ongoing courageous witness of so many dissidents in communist countries, the decade immediately before the collapse, also featured the Eastern policy of Pope St. John Paul II and the determined efforts of Ronald Reagan, who believed against all prevailing wisdom, he believed against all prevailing wisdom, even among his foreign policy establishment, that change could occur in the Soviet bloc and that the U.S. would do whatever it could to encourage it. There has also been, uh, there was also the collaboration between the two of them, John Paul and Ronald Reagan, two epical men to make that happen, a story that still has not been fully told. There was also something else, though, that was a decline of the hold of the communist ideology. This parallels the condition of Western secular culture that I have talked about, where the dissolution of all certitudes and the remaining, sole remaining ethic of autonomy inches us ever closer to outright nihilism. And what has come along with this, as Pope Francis has suggested, is a lot of personal suffering, hurt, and pain. The conditions may cry out for a restoration of sound culture much sooner than we would imagine. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.